Play is the real work of childhood, but what is play? What is the kind of nutritious play that helps kids and adults grow their creativity, develop social skills, and have fun? Join me, LEGO Master Model Builder Sam Siri, for the Untangling Toys podcast. I'll talk to parents and experts about everything related to play and test drive toys to see if they give the children in your life that nutritious playtime they deserve. Find Untangling Toys on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello, everyone. Today, I will be talking with Robin Zickmund. Robin is a mother who has had an incredibly long journey in trying to identify her son's learning struggles to finally learn he is dyslexic. She is the founder and president of the Decoding Dyslexia Idaho chapter and has worked tirelessly over the past few years to create change at state level in Idaho education. In today's episode, Robin shares her journey as a mother of a child with dyslexia, what changes need to be made within our literacy system, and how you can learn to advocate for your own children. Stories like Robin's are so powerful because they allow other parents to feel less alone in their struggles. And once we know more, we can do better. Robin took those next steps to advocate and educate parents so that change can be made. The future is bright with people like Robin advocating. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right, everyone. We have Robin Zickmund here on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I would love to open up kind of with a, a two-part question for you. So the first is you founded Decoding dys- Dyslexia in Idaho, and I would love to know more about that movement in particular. But perhaps first, you could just start off with just your personal experience with your son and kind of like what all led you to decoding dyslexia. I would love to hear your full story because I think there are so many other parents kind of struggling with the same. So I'd love to hear it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's it's a long story. My story started 10 years ago, you know, when my son was four years old. He is now 14 in eighth grade, still reading at first grade level. So let's see, four, <laughs> four years old, I had a pediatrician well check. And my pediatrician said, you know, I feel like he's not connecting where he needs to be, you know, with developmental skills. So I'm going to refer you out to Child Find. I'd never heard of that. 
So Child Find is, I now know, a federally funded requirement through uh, special education law that all states are required to offer Child Find to catch kids early. So we went ahead and scheduled and my husband and I went and took our four-year-old to a two and a half hour evaluation. This was in the state of Colorado at the time. And we watched a whole team of OTs and SLPs and all the people that have all the right pieces of paper that have qualified them to do all the right things. And they put him through a two and a half hour evaluation to determine whether or not he would be eligible for special education at the age of four. And it was very emotional. I've been, a, I was a stay at home mom I, for more than 10 years, certainly a stay at home mom at that time, and really invested in my babies, loved being a mom, did all the things I thought I should be doing as a mom you know, had a library of books in my home and always playing and activities and, you know, play dates with kids their age and peers and story time every week at the library. And I really personally didn't see any real delays. This is my oldest son, so I didn't really have anything to compare it to. But once we'd been around some kiddos around four, I saw, you know, that he didn't have as many words um, as his peers. He was certainly speaking and he spoke clearly, like didn't have any speech impediments, but didn't have as many words, if that makes sense. But I just thought, you know, he's quiet, he's shy, he's a boy, you know, give him some time. And anyhow, after this two and a half hour evaluation, the team sat us down and said, you know, your son qualifies. He qualifies for special education services and we see delays basically in all areas. Nothing specific. Nothing was said to us about a specific learning disability or what areas exactly he was struggling in, but we're going to write him an IEP, an individualized education plan. At the time, we had him enrolled in a private preschool, and they said, in order to qualify for an IEP, this has to be administered in our public education system. So if you want to accept these services, we're going to enroll you in a public, your neighborhood elementary school that offers preschool. So I signed on all the dotted lines and we agreed to these services and we end up in a public education system at a large table with a school team that was now providing services for my son. You know, meeting with that school team, I had no idea, no idea what was going on. I knew nothing about learning disabilities or certainly not dyslexia and really was struggling to try to figure out what these professionals were seen in my son that I wasn't. And, you know, at four years old, you go into the preschool setting. I volunteered every time that I could. And I would watch him in this classroom and thinking, you know, he's doing okay. He's holding his own. And then I would get into the, you know, conference room with this school team of experts. And they seemed to tell me, that they knew my kid better than I knew him. And I thought, that's so interesting. You've, you've spent maybe a week with him, you know, for preschool. What is, what is preschool? Three hours a day at the time, you know, and you're going to tell me, you know, my son better than I. They never once asked about me and my journey with him up to that point, who I thought he was, where I thought his struggles might be. No questions were asked of me at all. I, I was not a part of the quote unquote IEP team. I was being told by them what was wrong and what I was supposed to do and what they were doing. 
So I had one of the uh, individuals of the team tell me, you know, you do know your son has ADHD. And I said, no, I don't. She said, well, you need to get an appointment with your pediatrician. She was very cold. I called my pediatrician and my pediatrician who referred me to child find said, who told you that? She said, number one, I would never diagnose a four-year-old who's had his- Yeah, no, please. I, oh gosh, that is so crazy. Yeah, four years old, first experience in a classroom setting and you've got Mm. something such things as ADHD Mm -hmm. label like such. Mm -hmm. She said, absolutely not. I wouldn't even bring him in until he's at at minimum five years old and he's been in kindergarten for a substantial Mm -hmm. time period of time. Mm -hmm. So just a very cold experience in preschools. So, you know, the the system goes that they are going to move you along through the process. My son's a summer baby. So he was turning five in June uh, in Colorado. Kindergarten was starting August 4th, two months after turning five. And they're transitioning me to the kindergarten team and thankfully, at the time, I had a friend that was a school teacher, a kindergarten teacher. And she said, you know, you don't have to do that. You don't have to enroll him in kindergarten. I said, well, they tell me I'm going to lose these services. She said, so? So what? You're the mom. You get to decide maybe the gift of time and giving your son another year before starting kindergarten is, is everything he needs. So... I took that advice. I went to the transitional meeting into kindergarten and I told the school team that I was not going to agree to continue services. I was pulling him and we were going to do another year of um, pre-K and they were appalled, definitely felt like I was completely off my rocker. You know, clearly I (laughs) was failing him by that decision But it's a decision I made. I signed all the right paperwork and I lost IEP services and I moved over to a private preschool. So we did that year at age five. And at age six, I enrolled him into kindergarten. Prior to the first day of school, I had emailed the kindergarten teacher and said, can I get a meeting? I'd like to give you a little history about my kiddo. So I brought the IEP from age four and said, you know, we did a child find evaluation. He had qualified. I've now lost services, but I want you to be aware of the history. And she said, wonderful. Thank you for the heads up. I said, I'm really unclear of what his struggle is. And she looked at the IEP. She said, yeah, I'm really unclear too. They've got a lot of different goals written here. You know what? I tell you what, Robin, let's just start kindergarten and let me just see how he does. And so I quickly enrolled as the kindergarten classroom mom and volunteered all the time and watched my kiddo thrive. He was doing really well. And he seemed to, the teacher was like, he's doing great. He's got great friends. He's connect socially. He's all the things are click, click, clicking. And he seemed to be doing well. And about midway through the year, their instruction in reading, he hadn't made the progress and connections that his peers had. And I noticed it before the teachers that he wasn't didn't have his letter sounds and his letter names the way that his peers did. He would have them one minute and then they would be gone the next. He couldn't hang on to some of the lessons being taught. So I raised the question and they said, I tell you what, we'll put him into reading recovery. This was a whole language school, Lucy Calkins, and <laughs> that whole experience. I'd never heard of reading recovery. So we went ahead and started at the tail end of kindergarten. It was a 12-week program, 
So we did it for a few weeks. Kindergarten ended. We picked it back up the beginning of first grade. And there was this lovely woman who was in her 70s that chose not to retire because she couldn't wait to come back and work with my son Carter into first grade. She and I had coffee regularly. I adored her. I asked if I could come and sit in on one of the read and recovery sessions. So she she invited me in. I, I was so eager to learn from her on what I could be doing more at home. You know, I'd been reading to my son since, I don't know, three months old. I had a library of books at home. I loved reading. Grew up with a grandmother that always read those gold books to me. Yeah. And so we did all the things, all the things that I thought I should have done. Anyhow, I sat into that reading recovery session and I was so confused. What are we doing? They did a quote unquote picture walk. Come over here, Carter. We're going to do this picture walk. And they opened this book and they, what do you think could be happening? You know, and Carter's smart. He's looking at the pictures. He's creating the story through the pictures. And we, she walks through every page, closes it, says, good job, Carter. Let's now we're going to open it and read. And she's re he is reading literally getting every word on the page correct. There's about three words per page. And I'm looking at my son, looking at his eyes. He is not reading a single word on the page, not a single word. And the last page is a picture of a canoe. And the word is canoe. And Carter says boat. And she closes the book and says, good job, Carter. And she sends him back to class. And I'm literally jaw dropped, like, what? You know, I'm an older mom. And so I come from the time when phonics were t was taught and how to break a word apart into syllables and all of those things. And I'm thinking, I'm so confused. I, I'm doing everything wrong. That's not at all what I was doing with my son at home. And Carter heads out and she says to me, we don't want to correct him. We want him to fall in love with reading, Robin. So encourage reading. We don't need to be, you know, focused on the words that he got wrong. And I said, yes, but he wasn't reading any one of the words on the page. Oh, but he was. Anyway, that started my research. So I went home that day and I thought something's not right. And I do dove deep into everything I could possibly Google about reading. And my friend of mine, who was a school teacher, said, you know, I feel like Carter might be struggling with dyslexia. And she handed me a checklist of the signs of dyslexia. I'd really never heard much about dyslexia. Thought it was about, you know, a kiddo that might have their letters flipping around backwards. That's as much as I knew. And I took that screening and checked every single box. I could check every single box. And I thought, that's it. My son's struggling with dyslexia. So I went on a deep dive of learning what I could about dyslexia. I drafted a letter to request a special education evaluation in writing for my school team. And that put them on notice to begin the process of getting back, getting him reevaluated to qualify again for an IEP. So we did that about mid-year uh, first grade. He, of course, qualified. I said, I think my son's struggling with dyslexia. And they said, well, we're going to service him under SLD, which is uh, the category that dyslexia falls under in federal law, specific learning disability. 
So in end of first grade year is done. Basically, no services have really been provided other than the 12-week reading recovery program. Uh, the beginning of second grade starts, and they have the Susan Barton program at the school I was at in Colorado. They said, we're going to start using Susan Barton. I said, great. So he was getting polled and receiving one-on-one services with the Susan Barton Orton Gillingham-based program. We quickly picked up our home and moved here to Idaho. I'm originally from Oregon, and we couldn't wait to get closer to home. So my husband grew up on a ranch near here. Anyhow, so we moved back here to Idaho in October of second grade. So he had maybe 30 days of Susan Barton back in Colorado. I quickly make an appointment with a special education teacher here. I bring in his IEP. I said, my son has dyslexia. Uh, what Orton Gillingham based programs does the West Ada School District provide? And her eyes glazed over. She'd never heard of Orton Gillingham. And I said, training do you have in Orton Gillingham? What resources do you provide? You know, they were using Susan Barton. Do you have Susan Barton? I mean, every question I asked this poor teacher, she had no idea. It was like I was speaking a foreign language. She'd never heard of it. We don't really, we don't really acknowledge dyslexia in Idaho. Really? (laughs) So that was the beginning of me finding decoding dyslexia. Through my constant research, you know, I think there's a little sign here on my desk that says, uh, worried mother does better research than the FBI. And it's true. I was really worried. My son's now in second grade. He still doesn't even recognize all of his letters and sounds. And no one's helping him. No one's doing anything. In the school system, mom can only do so much at home. You know, I, again, as a stay-at-home mom, I really just was passionate about raising my kids to be, I have two boys, raising them to be kind, have good manners. You know, the things that I thought I should be doing as a mom at home were were things that I thought were not things education related. I thought the school will do that. I thought, you know, I'm going to introduce them to nature. We're going to go on hikes. We're going to go fishing. We're going to learn about plants and animals. And we're going to cook in the kitchen and we're going to get messy and we're going to do all these other things that I felt like was my job as a mom, expecting that our school system was going to do their job in teaching my son to read, reading, writing, and math. Isn't that what our school system is supposed to be providing? Yeah. So here I am in second grade here in Idaho, and I'm told they don't recognize dyslexia. Those were the words. So I made an appointment with the special education director of my school district. I dug up the 2015 letter from the U.S. Department of Education that reads, you can and will and should be using the term dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia. Those all fall under the SLD category in our federal, you know, special education federal laws. I took that letter to my special education teacher at my elementary school. I said, have you seen this before? No, I've never seen that letter. And I thought, why not? So I made <laughs> I made an appointment with the director of special ed at my district, and I was red hot angry. To fill in one, one little point that I forgot to mention, when I realized that they weren't going to support dyslexia, I thought, you know, maybe a diagnosis, because I'm just, I'm coming and telling them this. But they aren't willing to support me. Maybe I need a diagnosis. So I made an appointment with a neuropsychologist and my son 
at eight years old, had a full neuropsych evaluation that cost me more money than most families can afford. And I was so excited. It was confirmed my son is struggling with dyslexia, dyscalculia, and dysgraphia. And yes, he does have ADHD. So we've got all the things. And I take my big 30-page, you know, neuropsych report to my IEP meeting where my supervisor of special education for the district was present. And I said, here you go. Now will you help him? He has dyslexia. Let's write goals that are going to support his areas of need. He needs reading goals, writing goals for dysgraphia, and math goals for dyscalculia. Like, let's do this. And the you know, the supervisor was very much at the table to defend the district. She wasn't at the table to, with my son's needs in mind, with my son's best interest in mind at all. And that's when I made the appointment with her boss. And it was not a pretty appointment. I was red hot mad. I threw the letter from the U.S. Department of Education that was written in 2015. This is now 2018. So three years, this letter's been out. My special education is never teacher had never seen it. She didn't think she was allowed to say the word dyslexia. I said, why? Why as the director of the largest district in the state of Idaho for special education has this letter not been distributed? Why has there not been a professional development day for your special education teachers to understand what dyslexia is? how to appropriately remediate it, identify it. What what is this district doing? One in five children struggle with dyslexia. One in five. It's a large number. And I was basically, there was just constant resistance, constant resistance. So that again, through my research, I came across the movement, the Decoding Dyslexia Idaho movement. And I thought, oh, here we go. I can't wait. I can't wait to find the Idaho chapter. I'm just praying and just, you know, many tears had been shed, feeling very alone. Where are my people? I I can't wait to meet somebody to help me. I don't know what to do. What should I be asking for? I just remember so many days feeling so alone and so lost and just really hoping that I would find someone, someone, anyone that could tell me what I was supposed to be doing for my son and what I should be asking for at the school. And and there was no one. So here I found the decoding dyslexia movement and I thought, oh gosh, here, Idaho, I'm going to find my Idaho chapter. I reached out to learn that there was no Idaho chapter. So I was asked if I wanted to start it. And I said, yes, yes, I do. I'm ready to bring awareness to this population of students. So decoding dyslexia is actually a grassroots movement that started in New Jersey in 2011 by a passionate group of parents and educators that joined to say, we've got to do something. You know, we all have children in our public education system who are not being identified and who are not being supported with appropriate remediations and something's got to change. It's a large group of kids that we are missing. So this lovely group of ladies put together this grassroots movement. And my, I believe it was the fastest growing movement of its kind, where every state had a chapter in no time. I believe Idaho was the last state to establish a chapter. So I did that. I just decided to go for it. I set up a chapter and I established my chapter as a 501c3 nonprofit. 
knowing that I wanted to raise money to provide support for our teachers. I'm not upset with our educators. I've yet to meet too many teachers who are incredibly passionate about meeting the needs of all their students. They just simply don't know what they don't know. And it's, it's a broken system. It starts at university level. Our teacher prep programs are not appropriately teaching our teachers about what they need to know about once they get into the classroom. So we're failing at, at, you know, in my opinion, we're failing at university level. I often say we've got to stop the bleeding there. You know, these teachers come out eager to get into the classroom with really no skill set on how to teach and certainly no skill set on how to teach a child with dyslexia. So that's a bit about my story. This podcast episode is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is a great place to get some of your grocery and household essentials. The convenience of getting it all quickly shipped to our doorstep has been a huge time saver for us, and I really enjoy the brands that they carry, like Simple Mills, Siete, and their own Thrive Market brand. Our life is so crazy right now with lacrosse and end of school year activities, and I just stocked up our basket in our trunk with snacks for our kids. Our favorite snacks right now are the This Saves Lives bars in the s'mores flavor and the Go Macro bars. Personally, I love the peanut butter chocolate chip, and the kids have been loving the oatmeal chocolate chip cookie. As a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single order. On average, you save over 30% every time. I saved $35 on my last order. On top of the massive savings on each order, Thrive Market has a deals page that changes daily. It gives you cash back on so many brands, and they have a price match guarantee. Thrive Market has over 70 filters on their website and app. You can filter between gluten-free snacks or non-toxic cleaning essentials with the click of a button. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need for their one-for-one membership matching program. You join and they give. Join Thrive Market today and save 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Lindsay, that's L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, thrivemarket.com slash Lindsay. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. There were so many times during your story that I could hear friends of mine or other parents that have reached out or just other stories that I've heard the same things that you have. And and I like how you added at the end that, you know, this is not the fault of the educators. And there are so many that, you know, that's what they went into teaching because they feel empowered to teach children and they want to be there. I mean, never in a million years would they want to be doing the wrong thing and hindering a child from being able to read. I mean, that, that's, that would never be the goal. It's just been interesting as I was digging deeper on all of this, the Lucy Calkins and all of that, and just when it was being taught within universities and, and how teachers have really in the past year or two found out that, oh my gosh, we learned this way of teaching And now we're learning that it was wrong. And where do we even begin? And, you know, who knows who has the answer to that? Because it involves a lot of money and 
school systems and the state and depending on where you are, they might not want to invest all of that money to train educators, right? I mean, that's a huge overhaul. And then you have to completely overhaul all of the supplies, the books, everything that was included with a teaching program that isn't working. Personally, what we've experienced in our particular school district is that they are aware of the discrepancies within that teaching program in particular, or so they say, but they still use the same materials. So they they teach differently. So they're teaching, it's more phonics-based, it's all sound-based and all of that, but they're still using the materials. To me, that doesn't make sense. But from a standpoint of money and all of those things, I, I understand it. It's just as a parent, so incredibly frustrating because I think depending on your kiddo, they may be great with this and they might do fine. Like our first child did absolutely fine with all of this curriculum. And it wasn't even changed at that point. Like they just changed it this year. She did well and she reads great. But every child is so different in the way that they learn. And our seven-year-old is is does not learn this way well at all. I'd love to hear more too from you about what you think besides the educating part of it when it comes to like Orton Gillingham instruction and things like that. What could be happening on the, the individual school system level that could make it easier for parents to understand what's going on with their kiddos better? Like I, I do feel like as as you mentioned, like your kiddo didn't get diagnosed with an actual diagnosis for years after he was struggling. Like it shouldn't take that long, you know? And I know that when they're younger, everything's very developmental and especially in kindergarten where they are kind of all over in their seats and they're fidgety and won't sit down. Like I have one of those, like she just will not sit and listen. And it's like, I just feel like there needs to be more in place. Like, what do you think? I mean, as far as like what schools could be doing. Right. Oh my goodness. It's, that's that's a, a big question. And I feel like it doesn't have to be that difficult. I feel like a couple of things. I think that, again, number one, we've got to stop the bleeding at university level. We've got to have a more robust teacher prep program at all universities. And it needs to be consistent across the nation in what is being offered at, through university teacher prep programs. Because as it stands right now, it seems that our teachers get out and truly are not prepared to teach. They don't have the appropriate skill set. They get into this public school system. They're paired with a teacher mentor and they learn from whatever that teacher mentor is teaching them on how to how to be a elementary school teacher. I'm going to stay, stick with elementary at the moment. But, you know, so they're modeling after whatever they're Uh, mentor teacher is doing. And their mentor teacher has also not been taught appropriately on how to teach. So the trickle down just continues. And so I feel like as a nation, we're starting to become aware parent groups like decoding dyslexia and many others are becoming aware. And that's creating an impact and creating conversations about exactly your question, what needs to change. So because of that, I think that I'm, you know, I have a hope that universities are 
taking a look at what they need to do, what their responsibility is in all of this, because when our teachers get into our schools and they're not prepared, it then falls on the school district to pay for and provide appropriate professional development. Well, that's expensive. Why wasn't that taught in the universities? That you're, You as a college student are paying a substantial amount of money to that university to be prepared to be a teacher. So why then does that teacher get out into the schools and it then becomes the school district's problem to do what the universities didn't do? At the end, when, when it comes into, by the time we're at that point, it's then you and I as parents, it's our tax dollars that are funding our public education system. And we as parents should have a say in how those dollars are being spent. I am the furthest thing from political. When I started this journey, I, <laughs> I had no real idea of politics, but one of the movement, one of the requirements or the goals rather of the grassroots movement of decoding dyslexia is to pass legislation, state legislation to require early screening in identifying dyslexic students. So I went on a crash course in politics and have learned how unfortunate it is that in the end, our public education system is really managed by politicians, many of which may not have an education background, may may be making decisions and voting on what needs to be happening in education when they themselves haven't been in the classroom or or maybe they've been a parent that of a child, like you mentioned, your oldest and my youngest, for that matter, who both learned to read with inappropriate instruction. They were able to figure it out. And many students are, but many aren't. So our legislators are making decisions politically about our education system when they themselves don't have the knowledge that they need to be making those decisions, if that makes sense. Oh, no, it it absolutely makes sense. And I think that could go for so many different different topics besides this one. And I think that is one of the most frustrating things. And as as you had mentioned, I, I mean, up until, oh gosh, I don't even know what year, but like five, six, seven years ago, I was the person that would leave the room once somebody talked about politics. And I think actually, now that I look back, that was really a luxury to not care, right? Because I never had to. Yeah, I never wanted to. I was going to be the mom that brought the cupcakes to the classroom. That's as much as I wanted to be involved in any of this. I really trusted the system. And I thought when my kiddos got into school, how fun would it, is it going to be to be that mom, you know, supporting school from a, from a fun perspective. I, I had no idea that, how dysfunctional our education system is, how, how we are failing, not only our dyslexic students, but as Emily Hanford has brought light to, we are failing uh, across the board. And so my passion started because I have a son with dyslexia, but through this process, I have learned we aren't, it's not just our dyslexic students who aren't being taught to read. And we will never effectively reach our tier three students until we as a whole address how to effectively teach reading in tier one. It has to start in kindergarten, first grade gen ed classroom setting where structured literacy is being provided effectively 
with teachers that are trained and supported with continued professional development. And then it goes on from there. You're going to have, if a child has been provided that appropriate instruction in kindergarten and first grade, the kiddos that are struggling will quickly be identified. They'll quickly stand out and they'll, you move them right over to tier two and you get that small group deeper dive of a lot of the same thing. And then again, you'll have your kiddos like my son, who's on the more severe end of the dyslexia spectrum. You'll at least though, he wouldn't be where he, where he was in third grade when I finally got a diagnosis. You know, here statistically, a child that has not received appropriate remediation at a young age. Statistically, I think it is after fourth grade, it takes four years longer, four years longer to remediate that student. Four years and how much money? So if we're going to talk, yeah, going to talk politics and we're going to talk about how to spend our money. I mean, as I'm down in the Capitol last year trying to pass our state's dyslexia legislation, That is always every politician's focus, especially here in Idaho, how we spend money. And I I appreciate that. I don't want to spend my dollars or your dollars more than we have to. I don't want to ask for more tax, you know, money to be poured into our education system. I want to spend it smart. And so for them to be down there telling me last year that they don't want to pour money into it, into early intervention, into early remediation. I'm just thinking to myself, how can you not see big picture? You are missing out. You're already spending the money. In fact, you're spending loads more than you will if you fix it up front. Instead, you're choosing not to spend the dollars up front. And guess what? You now have a whole population of students, third grade and beyond, that are now qualifying for special education services that are way more expensive that they never would have needed, not to mention the mental health piece that comes along with that, that comes along with especially our dyslexic students who are misunderstood. In third grade at eight years old, I had my son tell me he wanted to kill himself. This is a healthy, happy boy. I mean, a a popular boy. That is the effect that going to school day after day, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, Watching his peers move on with the lessons that are being taught while my son sat back thinking, something's wrong with me. I'm not getting it. I'm stupid. And now peers are starting to notice in third grade when you're no longer learning to read, but you're reading to learn. And my son still couldn't hold on to the letter sounds in third grade. And (laughs) his peers are making fun of him. It's deeper than that. It's so talk about money (laughs) back to the money and the politics. I just, I can't understand that narrow minded perspective. You, the the amount of money in every state is different. I I can't recall exactly the dollars in Idaho, but it's more than $6,000, $7,000, let's say per student that qualifies for special education. Well, guess what? If my son would have been in a kindergarten classroom setting with a teacher that had received structured literacy professional development using Orton-Gillingham methods to teaching reading, he may never have needed special education. Most of our dyslexic kids won't 
needs special education. So I'm incredibly passionate about catching our kids early because I'm an advocate across the state and I am an advocate always for students third grade and beyond. I don't get a phone call to support a kindergarten, first grade or second grade student because they haven't been recognized yet. You know, so this student I helped recently in a small rural school district here in Idaho, 11th grade, reading at second grade level. Oh my gosh. 11th grade, reading at second How grade How do they even level. get to that point? It's like, this is what has just been so surprising for me is like, how on earth does a child get to 11th grade and read at a second grade level without somebody noticing? Right. It's just, it's such a disservice. And I wish society as a whole could get a better glimpse of walking this journey because we are failing. And when it comes back to the dollars, everyone's worried always about spending the dollars. Well, guess what? What happens to that 11th grade student that's reading at second grade level? You know, oftentimes, you know, my kiddo's fortunate. He comes from a family of, that has resources. I can afford to financially pull him out of our public school and place him with a highly trained Orton-Gillingham dyslexia specialist so that he can receive what he needs in order to close the gap in reading. I stay in this for the students out there that don't have that option, that don't have a mom that has the time to fight because she's working all the time. And she herself may have struggled. Dyslexia is hereditary. So the cycle just continues. And our system is spending the dollars when that student drops out of high school and is now on the streets making poor choices, ends up in our juvenile detention center, possibly down the road in our prison system. We as a society are paying out of pocket for that. So how about give these kids a chance? How about give these kids a chance and do what's right in our education system by preparing our teachers to understand how to teach reading effectively for all students. What's good for your dyslexic student is good for all students. So do what's, what is needed for these kids in kindergarten, first and second grade. So they never have, they're never at a place where they now have mental health issues because they feel like they're dumb and they're being made fun of and they're acting out and have behaviors in school and they're in and out of our detention system and now they've dropped out and now they're in our prison system. And it's just this spiral where I just can't understand why we can't step back as a society and look at big picture and really make changes. This isn't just literacy is the gateway to success. You can't read, you can't get a job, period. You know, so why isn't everybody passionate about fixing this? Think of how society could change if we fixed this in our public education system. And again, it starts at university level. Yeah, yeah. And and as we mentioned before, I mean, in order to make any change in anything in life, you have to, the education part needs to be there first before you have people like yourself, which is so admirable to, to take it to the next level 
and try to change policies and try to spread the word. I mean, those things are so important because again, unless my child had struggled, I wouldn't have even went down this road myself, right? I had heard nothing about any of this prior to my child struggling. So this should not be a matter of, oh, my child's struggling, so this is why I know about it. This should be a very well-known situation that everybody can get involved in, and that's when changes are made. And so that's why it's been so important to interview you and other people that have had these experiences because all of them are so important to give people the knowledge of what's actually happening and how we can all work together to make a change. And I wanted to ask you because you were saying what would have happened if possibly the teacher, the kindergarten teacher had been trained in structured literacy for development purposes and all of that. And I wanted to ask you kind of what, if if a kindergarten teacher right now wanted to get educated in this particular way, what would that entail? What does that look like? Well, I, yeah, I, I, I do that as decoding dyslexia, Idaho, we raise money to train teachers and I'm constantly searching what, and it's the number one question I get, what training, what training, what training. And there's so many good ones out there. And one of the ones that is near and dear to my heart is EMSI, the Institute for Multisensory Education. Reason being is they provide a realistic commitment of teachers to get introduction that's incredibly powerful with all the resources needed after just a one-week training to walk into the classroom and to be have effective impact immediately. So is it, you know, a one and done? No. Is it the answer for for everything? No, but it's the In my opinion, it's the most impactful training that a teacher can take to have immediate impact in the classroom, starting in tier one. And then from there, it continues on, you know, so Decoding Dyslexia brought MZ here because I had some teachers reach out to me and they said, will you help us? We want to get training and we want to bring MZ to Idaho. And I said, absolutely. So we partnered together and We brought in-person training here last July, and we trained 55 teachers, a combination of public school teachers ranging from first grade through high school. And we had SLPs, and the training was incredibly successful. And I've tried to follow those teachers since to see what kind of impact that had. There's a first grade teacher here in my school district who took it upon herself and wrote a grant to her PTA. And she got the grant and she used it for MZ training. So she did the training virtually and she's a first grade gen ed classroom having incredible impact to go and watch her class and observe how to teach reading. I literally teared up. I I sat in her classroom and I thought I would have given anything for my son in first grade to have had a teacher with this knowledge. How would that have changed the trajectory of his, of his school years? So there's a lot of great training out there. I mean, of course, and near, you know, letters is near and dear to my heart. Dr. Louisa Motes, she's a resident of Idaho. She has been a complete support of the of parents and the parents' voice in all of this and a support of mine, you know, when the days were hard here in Idaho. 
keep going, Robin. In the end, it's going to take a parent that creates change. And I'm sad about that. Why? Why does it create a parent? Why is our system so broken? Who's responsible for that? I don't, I don't see any reason why a parent should ever have to be this involved in having education do what I think our education is supposed, education system is supposed to do. And to me, the number one skill is to teach all children to read. You know, scientifically, 95% of all children, all children can learn to read with appropriate instruction, 95%. So look at the national numbers of where we're at with reading nationwide. We're a long ways from that. We're a long ways. So the answer, in my opinion, is starting from the top again, where university teacher prep programs need to be held accountable for what they are providing our teacher candidates, number one. Number two, we need good leaders at state level. States need good superintendents that are going to hold their school districts accountable to the expectations for that state's education system. You know, there's laws out there that are passed in state, in Michigan, in, uh, you know, Idaho in 1999, 1999, Idaho passed a law, a piece of legislation that required screening. I dug it up. I dug it up and I thought, why am decades later, my son still is being missed. Children are still being missed decades later. And this law was passed. Why? So yeah, I reached out to Dr. Deb Glazer, who passed the law in 1999. I said, why am I still fighting this? Well, in the end, that's the case across the nation. There's legislation across the nation where that is not being that no one's being accountable to. So it's it's as good as the ink on the paper. So really, it's as good as the leader at state level who is creating accountability for those school districts. And then it's the school districts that are creating accountability for the school. And then it's the school that is supporting the educator mm-hmm. and supporting the teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm just... So thankful for people like you sharing their story and actually doing something about it. I mean, that that says so much about you as a person and just how big this problem really is and that people like you are willing to take it head on and it's it, without you, <laughs> possibly these, these things wouldn't be fixed. I mean, we really do need people like you to do this in every state, in every school system, because if people don't make noise nothing changes because that's the easier route. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And, and, and no place ever worth going, you know, (laughs) as they say, is free. So it's, it's, it's all, it shouldn't be this hard though. I mean, really, it's just, it's sad, you know, it shouldn't, I appreciate that I've been given the opportunity to be a voice to this, but it just really shouldn't be this hard. It's just mind blowing to me. And I know many parents, I mean, and it takes a village. I've got a village of supporters of experts in the state of Idaho that, I mean, I'm just a mom, Lindsay. I'm just a mom who, who had two little boys that I felt so fortunate to finally be a mom of and couldn't wait to be a part of their school life and their journey, never having thought 
that I would ever be involved the way that I am, nor would I have ever wanted to. And, and you shouldn't have to be. Again, if I could go back to when my son was two, three, and four, you know, I think I wish I would have known a bit more too as a mom about what developmental things he should have been, marks he should have been hitting. I think awareness for parents about that piece should come from their pediatricians. I don't know, maybe other moms are, are, are better at researching all of that and having that knowledge. I, I didn't. I just really did a lot of mom things, you know, playing and make, let's make Play-Doh and let's go on this hike and those type of things. And looking back now, you know, when I had that little book of a hundred first words and I had the book of the letters or excuse me, yeah, the letters and the shapes and the colors. And, you know, I wish I would have known how to more explicitly sit with my kiddos and walk through those books. I just played around with them. But now I wish I would have had a little bit of knowledge. You know, companies like MZ and many others also have parent resources. I, I, I'm on the MZ website frequently and the M, the parent resources they have, I'm like, oh, where was that? Or maybe it was, but how do parents know to even find it? You know, if I would have known that those were some of the fun things I should be incorporating in those early years, I sure would have done it. Yeah. I mean, what a could have should, and you can't blame yourself either because I mean, there's no way to have known any of this. And the best you can do now is you're educating, you're educating, you're talking about your story and stories are really powerful. And that's really important for, for kiddos that are, you know, younger than yours. And you probably even helping one person, right. Is, is worth it. So that's the goal. I said that when I was just so desperate to have somebody come in and swoop in and help me navigate mm-hmm. this whole system. I remember just desperate for someone. Yeah. And I made a pact to myself. Yeah. I'm going to gain knowledge and I'm going to be that someone for another mom. And it's the greatest joy I have. I have an IEP meeting tomorrow where I'll, where I'll go and support a mom because no parent should go to a meeting like that alone. No. You know, it's too emotional. and there's too much to navigate and it's important that you bring an advocate with you, even if it's just your neighbor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So I have two questions for you that I ask all of my interviewees and this can be about anything. It doesn't have to be about the topic that we talked about today. So the first question is, if you could give one piece of advice to moms, what would that piece of advice be? Trust your gut. Mom gut's a powerful thing. I knew in my gut early on things that I just maybe didn't really want to look at you know, mm-hmm. or knowing in my gut things, even in the school system early on in kindergarten, first and second grade, you know, I, I wanted to not believe what my gut was telling me. I wanted to believe what my education system was telling me, but even outside of education and just in general, as a, as a mom and as a woman, trust your gut. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Next question is, if you could make one dinner for your entire family that everyone would eat, that's relatively quick and easy, what would it be? Oh my gosh. A go-to dinner is in this house, probably chicken fettuccine. (laughs) That's a a good one. That's one I haven't had yet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Super easy recipe. Get out some cream cheese. That's the, that's the ticket to 
good chicken fettuccine and garlic. <laughs> cream cheese is like the ticket for every good recipe. <laughs> that and or sour cream. I feel like it's just, right. yeah. 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 <laughs> That's funny. I love it. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Robin, for sharing your story. Like I said, stories are really powerful. And I, I know that there are people listening that as you were telling your story, were saying, oh, I... I had the same interaction or I, I have the same experience and just to feel heard and validated is so, so important. And, and I think navigating anything in life is so hard when you feel like you're alone. So the most important thing is that you're making people feel less alone in their journey and their experiences. And I'm just so proud and it's so admirable what you're doing as far as taking it to the next level and taking on things like politics, which you don't want anything to do with to try to make change. And I know that that can be really difficult. So thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you, Lindsay. I appreciate that. It means a lot. And yeah, it means a lot. If you, when you know better, you do better, right? Exactly. That's right. I want to encourage all moms out there to find your, find your support group. You're not alone. There's another mom out there that's experiencing the same thing. So come together, you know, change comes and support comes in, in groups. It takes a village. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.